I just want to thank all of you that are our family at Calvary Baptist and all of you that are visitors that have come from as far away as Scotland, from the other side of the country, from British Columbia, down through the Carolinas, for our mission team that's here from Northview Community Church in Abbotsford, for those of you that have traveled from Kentucky and from Indiana and all kinds of places in between. Welcome to Newfoundland. Love our weather. It is good to have you here, but I have to tell you the joy and the thrill of, for me is to just see my church family and to see us gather together to hear you sing. It was a real blessing. If you're here from Calvary, you know that I've been preaching through the Gospel of John. I've titled that series, Conversations with Christ. The reason for that is because the Gospel of John is actually that a series of conversations that Jesus has with either individuals or groups or even mobs and crowds. And today I want to talk about how the glory of God in Christ is shared with his people, us, the church. But I must take a moment here in April the 30th of 2023 and give homage to the fact that the Maple Leafs got through the first round. (laughs) And even for those of you from Alberta, some from Calgary, some from Edmonton, they made it through as well. And you know what? It's that time of the year, isn't it? We actually have basketball and hockey. We're in the playoff season. And as I suspected, some of you here this morning are very, very happy. Now, Don't worry, Leafs fans, they'll have a way of disappointing you yet. But wouldn't it be something? (laughs) I'm not buying you a coffee for that, I can tell you that. But wouldn't it be something if the Leafs met the Oilers in the Stanley Cup playoffs? It would mean a nation would rejoice and most of America wouldn't even know. But not only is hockey and basketball in their playoffs, baseball has started, football just had their draft and will soon be in high gear, the cheering's been loud, the fist pumps many, and finally for the Leafs and the Oilers, a job has done, a goal accomplished. But you know that it's even more than just sports, isn't it? We have a highly charged political season right now, both in Canada and the United States, with upcoming elections and rumors controversial bills and ideas are all competing for our attention. But you know, what I find fascinating is that almost every time someone wins something, and you saw it again last night as you saw the highlights or you watched the game, every time someone or a political party or someone accomplishes something, whether it's business or sports or writing or whatever it might be, I've heard this saying whether it's award shows or in locker rooms, whether it's on the ice or on the field, I've heard it in the business room and in the classroom. And you know what it is? Inevitably, you'll hear this statement. Someone's clinging their trophy, someone's clinging something, and they say, no one can take this away from me. One of the most famous instances of this was the San Francisco 49er uh, quarterback, Steve Young who fought so long in the shadow of a guy named Joe Montana, and he finally won his Super Bowl, and he clung that, and that's what he said. 
no one can take this away from me. Calvary Baptist family, for all of you tuned in online, for all of our guests and visitors, you know, one of many reasons that I believe in God, the reason I believe in Jesus and the Holy Spirit, one of many reasons why I believe the Bible to be the Word of God. That's why we stood in reverence to it. One of the reasons why I believe and trust God, and I am still learning to trust Him, is that really, human beings, we can't help ourselves. We are forced to imitate and act like the one who created us. No matter how much we talk, no matter how much we rejoice or how much we celebrate about a job well done or I did it or we did it or no one can take that away from me, the truth is, in all honesty, we've got to say that although there is often satisfaction in a job well done, there is never that satisfaction that we could have done it better. The leaves could have swept them. And the reality is they can only enjoy this for a few days and then it all starts over again because it's not finished. So today, when Shane just read the beginning, the opening prayer of Jesus Christ, we come before the glory of God in prayer. We come and His glory not only in prayer, but by his nature. And I want to submit to us this morning that if we will see and understand and bow before the glory of God, you'll discover that will meet your greatest need. You see, the glory of God is only able to provide rest for weary souls. The glory of God will give hope to discouraged hearts. The glory of God will give loving motive to pursue holiness and to fight sin. Only a glorious God offers confidence that the culture doesn't need to be feared. The glory of God instills compassion for us to offer, not religion, not a get quick or get better quick scheme, not a cheap thrill, but rather the glory of God gives us a humble and patient and long-suffering and generous, and honest, and truth-telling, love-offering gospel. It's the gospel of God. It's His glory. And because of His glory, offering us this glorious gospel. I want to focus on verses 4 and 5. Excuse me. Jesus is praying to God the Father, and he's doing it in earshot of not 12, but 11 weary and confused disciples about what theologians call his covenant of redemption. Jesus is praying about glory, his and his Father's. And what I'd like you and I to learn today, my sermon in a sentence, so to speak, is that when God is glorified, Jesus is glorified. And that glory is shone upon humanity, and the actual glory of God is what offers us a way to be forgiven and redeemed and restored and adopted and declared righteous, washed of our sin and our sinfulness. It's important you all realize you didn't sin and become sinners. You are sinners, thus you sin. 
The glory of God washes us from that. The glory of God frees us from the tyranny of selfishness and pride and defensiveness and excuses. The glory of God in Jesus that's shared with us, his people, is perhaps the greatest rediscovery I believe the church of today needs to ask for in revival more than anything else. We need to capture again the wonder, the worship, and the awe of the glory of God. And when you come to John 17, especially verses 4 and 5, this is what is called the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. And for Calvary family, you know the background. In chapter 13 to 16, Jesus has given his final instructions and his teaching to the disciples. Judas has already left to betray him. Jesus is literally hours from the cross. He takes his tired, still confused little group, and they head toward the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew and Luke tells us they sang a hymn. They headed across the Kedron Valley. Judas is gone. (laughs) Peter has run his mouth. Thomas has asked a bunch of silly questions. And they're all likely nervous and afraid. And as they walk through the Kedron Valley, Jesus stops and says, let's pray. I wonder how many times he did that with his disciples. We have a few references in the four Gospels to Jesus in prayer. It's enough to allow us to know prayer was a big part of his life and his ministry. But here, I want you to allow the emotions and the tangible sense of life to hit you. Imagine if you were one of those 11, and you've seen and heard what these disciples have seen and heard. You know the political tension they're living in. And then Jesus prays, and this is what he prays. This prayer should be to us something of what that burning bush must have been to Moses. Because here, God speaking, we should be like Moses and put off our shoes, so to speak, and bow humbly, being about to tread on the most hallowed ground. The old awakening pastor, Jonathan Edwards, put it like this, grace is but glory begun, and glory is grace perfected. And Calvary Baptist, I want you to realize, and listen now, listen to God, pray to God. God prays to God the Father, Father to Son. This is God the Son praying to God the Father in unity and intimacy that is even beyond our imagination. And yet, this is God's gift to us. John 17 is here so we can know him, the only true God, and the one whom he has sent, as Shane read. And so I want you to notice first for me in verse 4, God's glory in the cross. Notice God's glory in the cross. Look at it. The very first petition of Jesus in prayer is simple and yet profound. It is the prayer that the Father would glorify Jesus, and as a result, Jesus would in turn glorify the Father. Look at it. Father, the time has come, in verse 1, glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Now look at verse 4. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. Sorry, that's verse 5. Then look at it, verse 4. What's the first thing you notice? 
Look at what he says. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished that which you gave me to do. (laughs) The first thing this verse tells us is that Jesus was given a work to do. I want you to realize this is the very essence of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son with a work to do. It wasn't just that he sent him. He sent him for a purpose. There was work to be done. It was an achievement before which all other achievements pale in virtual insignificance. The plan of salvation was set in place before God ever said, let there be light. It's funny. I know I went a little hard. For those of you who were here, I got a lot of comments about preaching a bit. I got a bit wound up and had to get my hanky out and stuff about worship yesterday. And we have Brother Nate here, a pastor from Indiana. And because he was just a good brother in Christ, he came to me after with this evil grin. And he said, oh, brother, I want to sing you about this song. I really appreciated your sermon. But don't forget, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. I could have punched him in the face. (laughs) Now, of course, he was playing with me. Of course, he was teasing because the Bible never says that. But here's what I will say. Before creation was ever spoken into existence, God's plan to make himself known and to overcome evil... And to display the grace and mercy and holiness and justice to manifest the glory of God. It might actually be more accurate to say, before creation, I was on the mind of God. Paul talks of this in Romans 9. But listen to unpack the covenant of of redemption to the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 1. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he has blessed us in Christ Something, if you were here, Brother Rob talked about what it means to be in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now watch this. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love. Now, don't be wigged out by these words. These should comfort you like a warm blanket. He, God, Christ, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters. How? Through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, according to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now watch the result of this. In him, there it is again, we have redemption. How? Through his blood. So what happens? The forgiveness of our trespasses. Why? According to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in heaven and on earth to him. Can I get a witness? Say how, you know, you you wouldn't get so bored with your Bible if you read it like that. You see, there's only one person who ever lived who is completely and eternally satisfied with his work, having perfectly accomplished his mission in life, Jesus. 
Jesus Christ prayed out of his own satisfaction and the Father's approval of that work that he achieved to perfection. This is why he says, I have glorified you on the earth. Jesus prayed to the Father, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. You see, if you're taking notes, write this down. Jesus prays about the glory of his mission. Why? Because it's a mission of glory given. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. He sent Jesus on a mission with a purpose. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit decided to do this. And still every moment of his life, from Jesus' birth to his death and resurrection, was from the eyes of God a moment of glory. All the way back in John chapter 1, in the introduction, it says, we have seen his glory. The first thing the disciples saw when he turned water into wine, and if you'll notice, they didn't argue whether it was real wine or grape juice. They marveled at the glory of God. Jesus' work refers not to just his miraculous works, but to all of God's work that he had been sent to accomplish. In chapter 5, my father is always at work to this very day, and Jesus says, I too am working. But it's not only a mission given, if you're writing this down, it's a mission of glory accomplished. (laughs) As Jesus faced his death on that night, Judas betrays him with a kiss. Peter denies him. Everybody runs away. One dude naked. I think he was the most Newfoundlander of the bunch. (laughs) He looked upon his life, not only with a perfectly clear conscience, but even more importantly, a perfectly clean conscience. He had no sin. It's not just that he didn't do wrong. He also did right for all the right reasons. Frederick Cadet comments, he says, He does not, Jesus, perceive in his life at this supreme moment either any evil committed or any good omitted. The duty of each hour has been perfectly fulfilled. There has been in this human life, which he has now behind him, not only no spot, but no deficiency. The words of Psalm 40 should come to mind. Behold, the psalmist says, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will. Oh, my God, your law is written within my heart. You see, not only did Jesus perfectly obey the Father all of his life, but he prays about this specific mission that he came into the world to accomplish. I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. But I think, want you to think about this. The cross hasn't happened yet. He talks about it in the past tense, when in reality for him, it's still future. That's how great our God can be. How can Jesus pray about this glory and this accomplished work? He can because he's God. This is who we're called to trust. I said earlier that theologians call this the covenant of redemption. And to be honest, since I knew I had so many visitors here, I thought maybe I would show them that Newfoundlanders can use big words and big ideas. Yeah, no, no, I'm not going to do it, Freddie, so just wait. (laughs) But I actually think that would be completely worthless. You see, if we don't see, understand, and experience the power of what's going on here, and this is why I love to read the Puritans. 
One of the books, two-volume set I've been reading for the study of John 17 is the Puritan Anthony Burgess, who, by the way, wrote 145 sermons on John chapter 17. How long do you think he spent meditating on these words? But another Puritan, John Flavel, does an amazing job of helping us feel with our humanity the awestruck wonder of God discussing their plan of the gospel. He imagines a, a dialogue between God the Father and God the Son where God the Father says, My son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lay open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them all. What shall be done for these souls? And Jesus replies, Oh, my Father, such is my love to and pity for them that rather than they shall perish eternally, I I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all their bills that I might see what they owe you, Lord. Bring them all in that there be no after reckonings with them. At my hand you shall require it. I will rather choose to suffer your wrath than that they should suffer it. Upon me, my Father, upon me put all their debt. And then God the Father says, but son... If you undertake for them, you have to reckon to pay the last might. Expect no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare you. And Jesus replies, I'm content, Father. Let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it, and though it proves a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverishes all my riches, empty all my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. Flavel concludes from that exchange, which resonates the biblical record, that we cannot remain ungrateful to one who's so pure, who bore our sin, one so rich who took our poverty, one so innocent who paid the penalty for our guilt because of love. How can we, he asked, ignore so great a salvation or complain about the duty of obedience to Christ? Flavel writes, Oh, if you knew the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in this, his wonderful compassion for you, how could you ever ignore it? <laughs> See, religion says, earn your life. Secular society says, create your life. But Jesus says, my life for your life. That's the gospel. The old Anglican minister, J.C. Ryle, says, Christ did what the first Adam failed to do, and all the saints in every age failed to do. He kept the law perfectly, and by so keeping it, brought in everlasting righteousness for all them that believe. This is what Paul means in Romans 5.19, when he says, For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Calvary, you need to realize, God, it brings glory to God for Jesus to accomplish the plan of the gospel, and it brings glory to Christ for God now says, son, I will give you a people. So do you know why we witness? It's not because it's our job to save people. It's because God's promised to save people. Did you hear what I just said? 
God has promised to save people. This is why we do what we do. Now listen, Jesus would redeem us from the guilt of our sin. Remember what Isaiah 53 says? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his stripes we are healed. Jesus is the one who gets the message through to us. God is real and he chooses to love us. It's glory to God to do this. It gives glory to Jesus in the form of a people. It's why, Calvary, you've heard me pray many, many times. God, as a reward for the suffering of your son, would you revive Newfoundland? William Barclay mentions an example in the First World War. He talks about a a battlefield engineer who died making sure information was delivered to save lives from a bombing in Bristol, England. His life was celebrated for sacrificing his life to connect that line so that the message and warning could get through. What Barclay does is he compares this to what Jesus has accomplished for us. He says, Jesus had given his life that the message might get through. What's the message? And that is exactly what Jesus did. He made sure that we would know God loves us. Now, it's true that Jesus delivered a message of God's love on the cross. But it is false that this was the sum of what he achieved. I don't want you to cheapen it. Jesus did not die merely so that God's message of salvation would get through to us. God's son died actually to achieve our salvation by laying down his life as an atoning sacrifice for sins. And that's why I can boldly say, if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe that God hath raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's that simple. And you might say, Steve, once again, buddy, man, you're wound up this morning. Just chill. Relax. How are we sure about all this? Why is this so great? How or why can I believe in this and trust in it and rest in it and give my life over it? How can I know that this is all real and this will change my life and transform my life like you're talking about? How can I make sense of all the craziness I'm going through? Well, I'm glad you asked. And you want to know what the answer is? The resurrection of Jesus. We know that Jesus finished his work. We know that he accomplished his mission, not only because he prayed this way in John 17, 4 and 5, but because the Father publicly declared his satisfaction because he walked out of a grave. Richard Phillips writes, I mentioned the satisfaction of a job well done. There has never been any satisfaction so infinitely great as God the Father's satisfaction in the covenant-fulfilling work of his Son. And since the Father has validated Jesus, mission accomplished, we rejoice in Paul's declaration. Are you ready for this? If you go away with nothing, Christian, go away with this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But you know what? Like the infomercials, wait, there's more. (laughs) Because now we see in verse 5, God's glory in heaven. Look at it. John Piper says, the glory of God is the manifest beauty of his holiness. He says, the glory of God is the going public of his holiness. And can't you see that little mad scientist saying that stuff? Right? It is the glory of God. 
It's the uniqueness of Christ. Paul Tripp reminds us grace doesn't just happen. It's been God's plan since before the world was created. This is what you and I have to see. Have you ever wondered why we call God Father? Have you ever wondered why in Matthew chapter 6, when the disciples wanted to know how to pray, Jesus said, when you pray, do this, our Father. Why did Jesus teach us to call God Father? Why in John chapter 17 did Jesus call God Father? Why does Romans tell us that we can call God Abba Father? I have a dear pastor friend of mine named Menno Kalisher who pastors in Tel Aviv. His father, Zvi Kalisher, was a Holocaust survivor and had the joy of getting to know them while I was in Israel and had multiple times when I took tours there and got to meet with them. And Zvi would go to the Western Wall, what is we often call the Wailing Wall, and witness and give testimony. But they were so kind and gracious once when I was in Prince Edward Island to come over to PEI and do a series of meetings for us. And Zvi gave his testimony of calling through the sewage systems of Auschwitz and sneaking peaches in and out as he was small enough as a young boy. And he was finally rescued and put on a boat to Israel. And on that boat, he was with some brethren folk, and they led him to Christ. And he gave his time to that. But uh, Menno and Zvi were there, and Zvi is the dad and Menno. And it was interesting to have people that speak Hebrew, and that's their language. And these guys would converse, and they would talk in English with me, but then they would talk in Hebrew with stuff. And Zvi was a, a crusty little dude about this tall, and uh, he was very opinionated. And I guess when you've survived what he has survived, you've earned the right to be opinionated. And you could tell sometimes that him and Menno would disagree about timing or scheduling or something. And they'd get into it in that Hebrew. And all of a sudden, uh, uh, Menno would say, Abba, Abba. Or when they'd be talking, he'd come and go, Abba, Abba. And it was the first time I'd ever heard that in my entire life in real life because I've read it in my Bible what does it mean that we can call God Abba Father see Christians listen don't look to your behavior or your feelings or even your faithfulness for your standing before God Jesus Christ is your righteousness and your status always there he's always reliable he's always the same I've said it before and I'll say it again Paul gave his life to the church he gave his life to Christ but he didn't give his life for the church or for Christ as one man writes the call is to die not for Christ but with Christ this truth makes all the difference Christ did not need our death like we need his John Owen simply says, one of the greatest privileges the believer has both in this world and for eternity is to behold the glory of Christ. Because it's not only a mission given, and it's not only a mission accomplished, but as we conclude, it's a mission of glory commissioned. This is why John 17 is so wonderful and so important. God's glory is his But amazingly and wonderfully, God shares that glory with us, his children. God loves us but doesn't need us. We need him. But I'm telling you this, no, because once you know this, and if you will believe it and trust it, then and only then you will rest. What do you think Paul could say what he does in 2 Timothy? He's writing to Timothy. He's near the end of his life, and he says, For I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. 
And the time has come for my departure. And listen to what he says. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is store in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And watch this. And not only to me, but also to all those who have longed for his appearing. Now remember, this is the same Paul who once told the Corinthians, I'm the least of the apostles. He told the Colossians that he was the least of Christians. And in 1 Timothy, he told Timothy, I'm the chief of sinners. And yet, because of the glory of God on the cross and God's glory in the cross, because God's glory would now be reunited with Jesus when he would go to heaven, he can now say, I am a partaker in the glory of God, and I know when I am faithful, God will see me through. Have you ever thought about all the ending promises and all the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3? They're all grounded in the vision of Jesus in chapter 1, which then gives way to the wonderful scene of Romans chapter, Revelation 4 and 5. You see, the glory we are talking about here is twofold. Jesus' glory as the incarnate Son of God and Jesus' glory as the second person of the Trinity. This is the very essence of what Paul is talking about. I love this because many of you know Philippians chapter 2 where we talk about God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? But do you know what it says way, way back at the beginning of that passage? Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus. Make your own attitude. I submit to us all here today, the glory of God in Christ on the cross and the promised glory of God in Christ in heaven, which means, by the way, not only did Jesus pay it all and all to him we owe, sin had left the crimson stain but washed it white as snow, it also means that right now, the perfection of Jesus that Rob talked about to some of us on Friday, Jesus right now for you and me is not is our advocate and our intercessor. He doesn't plead for us he doesn't have to God is pleased thrilled excited to lavish his love and his mercy and his grace upon us why because Jesus has been sent and he accomplished the glorified will of God thus God the father is now urgently passionately willingly to lavish on us his love Did somebody hear what I just said? You are willingly, passionately, urgently loved of God. You don't have to pray in fear. You see, far too many of you will say, Jesus loves me, this I know, but you're like too many husbands. I know my wife loves me, I just doesn't know, don't know if she likes me. And you know what? Many of you see God like that. You'll sing, God loves me, but you don't know if he likes you. This says God likes you, wants you, loves you, adores you, just can't wait to hear from you. His child, confess to him, require of him, uh, abandon yourself to him, admit your faults to him. He loves to hear from you and never gets irritated, never is impatient, never is absent, never asleep. That's the God we have. That's the God that city needs to hear about. 
It's God's glory shared with us, his people. Calvary, listen. I am the way, the truth, and the life is spoken not to outsiders. It's spoken to disciples for comfort. The utter, utter reason for us is God's glory. So Jesus' prayer in these first five verses about God's glory. And as you can see, this prayer is not some vague, feelings-based, wishy-washy request. Jesus is glorious and has been given a glorious mission by a glorious God who is glorified by Jesus, in turn glorifies his son. Jesus can pray this specifically because he is God and has authority to pray this. Friends, God the Father is glorified as people come to Jesus to receive eternal life. Jesus is glorified by the Father and the Father by the Son. So let me ask you here today. Number one, do you know Jesus in an eternal life kind of way? What I mean is not that you think you have found the key to live forever. I mean, do you know Jesus so that you know you're loved by him and you can't help but love him back and you would rather die and go to hell if it meant Jesus was with you. Because that's what Spurgeon said. Spurgeon said, if you offered me heaven without Christ, I don't want it. And if you offered me hell with him, it's where I'd go tonight. Do you know Jesus in that kind of way? And Christians, largely in this room, can I ask again, do we sing and pray and live life passionately and urgently wanting, longing, striving to give our lives a glorifying offering to God the Father through Jesus Christ by His Spirit? It is this glory of Christ that is heaven's great song and the joy of Christ's people forever. Worthy are you who were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. This is why Newton can say, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Because God's glory was shared with him. And this converted, rapist, slave-trading murderer could say, I deserve hell, but the mercy and grace of God has saved my soul. So, we can confess our sins. It gives God glory. We can pray for our marriages. It gives God glory. You can go to God with your singleness. It gives God glory. You can talk to him about your families. It gives him glory. You can pray about government and pray even for our enemies because it gives God glory. We can suffer well because it gives God glory. We can experience loss and hurt and pain, but not without hope and promise because it gives God glory. Terry Virgo says, delighting in God's will is the goal. Genuinely praying, your will be done. We'll find that hard if we haven't got to know and trust God. We'll always want him to bless our plans and our preferences. But he says, make it your aim to know, trust, and love him. Then his will will become your delight. 
And I finish with Richard Phillips. He says, if we realize that Jesus finished his work, that his mission is accomplished, then we'll cease trying to do something more for our salvation. It really is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Our great need now is not to add our works to Christ's finished work, but for the glorious Christ to reign in us with his power. We sing, he ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for every race. His blood atoned in every space and sprinkles now the throne of grace. God is satisfied in Jesus and has glorified his son in heaven. The only thing that he desires even more is for Jesus to be glorified in our hearts. That's the goal of our salvation, which we receive by believing in him so that God would shine in our hearts. And I don't know about you, but this is the God I want to sing to and sing about. This is the God I want to run to and confess and give my life to. This is the God that I want to share with everybody. This is the God, I will be honest, when I stood at the bedside of a man 105 years old who said to me, read God's word, and I watched him go into eternity. This is the one when I held an eight-day-old baby and he died in my arms, and I gave him to a collapsing mom and dad who could then say, pray for me, pastor. This is the one when I got a call in the middle of the night to go tell a daughter that her mom had been killed in a car accident and her father is in a coma, and you can say, this is the God who is here to comfort you. <laughs> Don't make religion abstract. This prayer is for real life. If you don't know him, will you come? If you do know him, trust him and let us now sing his praise. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, thank you for the joy of exhaustion. What a privilege to be tired speaking about you and singing to you. Lord, I pray that the word of God read will have convicted and comforted hearts here this morning. Lord, if there is a man or woman here who doesn't know you, they're curious, they're skeptical, they're hurt, they're angry, they're running, they're scared. Oh, God, may your word draw them to you for your glory. And Lord, for Christians, for Calvary Baptist Church, for Kilbride Community Church, for Downtown Community Church, for those that may be watching up in Labrador from Northern Cross Community Church, for any men or women that have tuned in online, and everyone in this room, oh God, help us see your glory. And Lord, may that motivate us as husbands and wives, moms and dads, sons and daughters, aunts and uncles, friends and neighbors. Oh God, for your glory, would you work here across this country from sea to sea to sea that your name would be glorified 
in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.